0: Well, good morning to you. How are you guys? Awesome. If you're new, my name's Justin. I am one of the pastors here. And this is Adam, another one of the pastors here. Uh, if we've never met, I would love to meet you before you take off. Um, I am not preaching today. Normally, I would get the opportunity, but I am not. Uh, Carrie Faye has been on the calendar to preach today for uh, several months now, and so we are so thrilled about that. Uh, but before we get to Carrie Fay and to the, the Word, we have a couple of announcements. Uh, the first announcement, which isn't really an announcement, it's more just uh, I have the mic so I, I get to say it. Um, thank you for those of you who were praying for me last week. You may or may not have heard. I got the COVID and uh, I was not one of the lucky ones who just didn't have any symptoms and happened to test positive. It hit me hard. That J&J really let me down. Uh, so <laughs> it hit me hard. And then it just did the like slow roll through our family where I started to feel better. And then the next person got it. And, uh, but I am clear. I am allowed to be in the wild. So don't feel like you have to stay away from me. I promise I'm good. And I am feeling way better. So, for those of you who sent me text and uh, just said you're praying for us, thank you. I'm really, really grateful. And then uh, the second thing, and then Adam has an announcement, but the second thing I have to say uh, is in regards to next Sunday. Uh, If you've been around our church for any amount of time, you know that once a year, usually around February, we take a Sunday. Uh, to talk about where we have been the last year financially and where we 're headed in the future, and sometimes we call this just like a family update or state of the Union, or some people just call it the budget talk um, it 's not necessarily a sermon. we do it on the, on a Sunday morning, so we do our normal Sunday morning gathering, but then instead of a, a normal sermon, I give this update and so if you are part of our church family, if you would call this home, please make every effort to be here for those of you that are watching at home, we would invite you to uh, be here with us we would love for you to be a part of this time and if you're just checking out our church and you're just trying to figure out like is this home that would be a great Sunday for you to get an idea of who we are for better or worse so please be here if at all possible next Sunday okay Adam has an announcement
1: all right and um, real quick by just raising of hands uh, has anyone here ever been to what we call man camp before yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. All right, it's a handful. Uh, so every year, uh, excluding 2020 because you know things happen, uh, Every year we go out to a place called Washington Family Ranch, uh, really, really deep out in like eastern Oregon, um, to uh, with a number of other churches that are part of the Acts 29 network. You can see this graphic behind me um, to just have a lot of fun. You're totally. Stephen likes it, right? He's loving it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So uh, it's this awesome time. Uh, I I say this somewhat jokingly, but did you guys watch that uh, like Rajneeshi documentary on Netflix? You know what I'm talking about? It's that property and it got like baptized. Now it's this like Christian retreat center. It's this like awesome place. So anyway, uh, there's like, it's man camp. So there's like go-karts, there's rock climbing, Stephen, into it. And then like basketball tournaments, all the things you would expect at a man camp. Um, but also it you guys what I love about it is yeah fishing hiking basketball whatever but it's a time to truly disconnect and connect at the same time you're you're literally taken off the grid as far as cell phone service and internet goes you you have no way to contact the outside world outside of a payphone Um, and you're just like landlocked there and it turns for me into like a a genesis, if you will, for really the whole year. It really helps me reconnect with God in a really fresh and unique way with other men that I can hopefully live into um, as we come back home. And so I would encourage you guys, April 29th through May 1st is when it is. If you sign up before April 3rd, it's $170. If you sign up after the fact, it's $200. I've got signups. Obviously, you can scan it with your phone right here, but I've got signups out in the lobby at the info table at a couple of spots too. But we would love to have 50 men or so come to this camp with me and a handful of others, so yeah. The last announcement I'll make, and then we'll hand off to Carrie Faye, is our youth are out of town this weekend. Um, It's a little bit lighter here this morning. Some of our parents are here, right? Um, I would would love for us to, um, not right this moment, but to spend some time this week just praying for them, that this would be a meaningful experience for them, um, that they just had a blast, but also that they may get home safe um, tonight, so that would be great. All right. Anything else?
0: Yeah. Just one quick thing before we invite Carrie Faye on stage. For those of you that are visiting, we always want to say this when we have someone who's not an elder preaching here, we want you to know that our elders take the preaching act very seriously. And so anytime we have someone that's not an elder come up here, we want you to know that we know love and trust that person. And in this case with Carrie Faye, we always want to reiterate that we know love and trust her. And we are so excited that she's going to preach today. In fact, last week when I had to bail because of the COVID, uh, she texted me and said, "Hey, if you want me to just push back so you can be here next week." And I was like, "Are you kidding? I'd rather listen to you preach than preach." So um, a couple of weeks ago we did a Table 101 class, and we were uh, Adam and I were up here, and Jordan, another one of our pastors who you heard last week, was in the room as well, and, and someone started to speak up, and they, they said, "I heard the greatest sermon of my life here at this church." And we all kind of lean in, like, tell us more, you know, like all the pastors. <laughs> And he's like, that woman, Carrie Faye, and her Sermon on the Holy Spirit, and we were like, we have to agree. Okay, we we get it. So she's obviously uh, known and loved here at our church. So would you please uh, join me in welcoming Carrie Faye to the stage today?
2: I love that story. Okay. (laughs) Good morning, church family. (laughs) It's um, good to be here. It's always good to be here. The very first time I preached here a few years back, I was speaking with a friend of mine who is a... Um, wise, gifted, spirit-filled communicator, and she said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, Carrie Faye, um, enjoy this. It is a precious place to stand, right? And it is. So thank you for letting me serve the church family in this way, thank you to Justin and the elders for continuing to invite me to stand in this uh, precious place. Okay. Okay, let's go. Show of hands, who has heard the expression famous last words? Yes? All of us. Like, um, we use it ironically, kind of in a, in a funny way, if someone's trying to carry all the grocery bags at one time from the car into the house, and they say, I got it, not going to drop the eggs. Famous last words, right? OK, so our text today actually features um, famous last words. So, um, by way of warm-up, I have gathered some famous last words from famous people just to kind of get us going. Okay. So here are a few. Alfred, H- Alfred Hitchcock, OK, famous last words. Um, one never knows the ending, It's the last thing he said. Emily Dickinson, right? I must go in, for the fog is rising, right? A poet to the end. Slightly less poetic, Elvis Presley, true story, I'm going to the bathroom to read. <laughs> Just, like, famous last words, right? Okay, Joseph Wright, who literally edited the dictionary, um, his, his last word was dictionary. Right? I'm sure his wife probably loved that, okay? <laughs> Nostradamus, famous for all of his predictions, said, "'Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here.'" Okay. Correct prediction. Marie Antoinette right, apparently tripped on her executioner's foot on the way to the guillotine, right? And her last words were like, "'Excuse me, sir.'" That's it, last words. Harriet Tubman, swing low, sweet chariot. Actor Jack Sue, it must have been the coffee. <laughs> Australian composer Percy Granger's last words were to his wife, Ella, you're the only one I like. I hope his, his kids were not there, hopefully, right? Okay. And playwright Wilson Misner's priest tried to speak with him, but Misner said, why should I talk to you? I've just been talking to your boss, which I love. Okay, last one, my favorite one ever. Convicted murderer Thomas J. Grosso apparently was not satisfied with his last meal before his execution. So he said... I did not get my SpaghettiOs, I got spaghetti, I want the press to know. (laughs) Noted, okay? Famous last words. So by way of graceful transition, the passage that we are looking at today contains the last words, the last recorded words of John the Baptist. He's had a lot of print time in the first few chapters of John, and this is where it ends today. So here's the plan for this morning. First, I want to walk through the section. Nine verses, we're going to go one by one because there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this short passage. There's like competitions and debates and incarcerations and weddings and one of the most famous lines in the entire Bible. Second, it's going to paint this really cool picture of who John the Baptist is. So after we read through the text, I want to look at him as a character, as a person. And then we're going to end like we always do with a so-what moment and seeing what God has for us in the text for today, for this week. Okay. So let's pray first then we'll jump in. Lord you are, you are here with us this morning and you know that the best use of these next few minutes together is a unified focus of our collective attention on you. We wanna learn about you. We wanna learn about the way that you work and the way that you want to change us in your love. So Lord we invite you to invade our space right now with your mystery, with your beauty, your logic, your presence. Silence the distractions, Lord. We are listening. Amen. Okay, let's do this. We'll be in John chapter 3 for most of this, starting with verse 22. And the translation I love the most is the NLT, New Living Translation. So that's what's going to be up on the screens, just a heads up. I say that because in case you didn't know, Justin, Adam, and Jordan all teach from the ESV. So this NLT, ESV thing has kind of become a thing. I won't say... Civil War, exactly. Um, But here's how every single sermon prep meeting starts. Justin goes, okay, would someone please volunteer to read the passage out loud from the ESV? And then Carrie Faye, you can read yours. (laughs) (laughs) But today, I have the mic. So, NLT it is, right? (laughs) Let's jump in at verse 22 of John chapter 3. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. Okay. You know this, whenever a Bible verse starts with the word then, you have to ask yourself what just happened, because it's connected to the previous verses, right? That's how you read something in context. In this case, what just happened was Nicodemus. Nicodemus just happened, okay? You remember he's this Pharisee, sneaks out at night to ask Jesus some questions, and he gets handed, you must be born again, in John 3.16, and all kinds of mysterious, kind of cryptic teaching, Okay? But Nicodemus, you remember, he's too stuck in his box. He's too stuck in his religion and in its structure and his own pride. He cannot hear what Jesus is actually saying. It's this really tragic moment. So Jesus and his disciples, after this, head out of Jerusalem and into the countryside to do some baptizing. Okay, side note, this is actually very like Jesus. To follow up on a confusing teaching, kind of a cryptic creative teaching like you must be born again, With a physical picture of that same concept, okay, the death and the life of baptism, born again, death and life of baptism. Okay, abstract concept, physical explanation. Okay, that's actually what symbolism is, right? Using something concrete to represent something abstract. Okay, anyway, he's investing time with his disciples, he's teaching them, he's training them, he's probably doing some team bonding, maybe a ropes course, and he's supervising them (laughs) while they baptize people. Okay, there's your context for the verses. Let's keep going, 23. At this time, John the Baptist was baptized in an anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. Okay, that part makes me laugh. Because there was plenty of water there? <laughs> I suppose that does make for a good candidate for a baptism site. Okay, get lots of water. So for you Bible geography nerds who need the map, I brought one for you. The actual location isn't known, but most likely it's halfway between Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So Jesus had been in Jerusalem down by the Dead Sea, which is actually off the map to the bottom here. Okay, that's where Jerusalem and Dead Sea, you can see the Dead Sea is the long skinny jelly bean shaped one over there. Okay. Then they move north into the country, okay, that blue tip in that far corner is the Mediterranean Sea to help orient you. And that long squiggly line down the middle is the Jordan River with plenty of water where Jesus had been baptized and where both, both teams are still baptizing right now. Okay, so that's where we are. So John the Baptist's ministry, his role was to prepare the way for Jesus, right? Um, his time was before the time of Jesus, right? Like the opening act at a concert, right? But not the main event, okay? But for a brief window, if you imagine like a Venn diagram, okay? Like just for a hot second, the two circles overlap. There's this really sliver in the middle. And the two ministries are happening at the same time. So one commentator had said, the Judean countryside must have been alive with the teachings of both of these great preachers, okay? So that's where we are. So both John and Jesus had disciples. Both had large crowds following them around, listening to them. Both were involved in the ministry of baptism. And then the bomb drops in verse 24. This was before John was thrown into prison. Whew, spoiler alert, right? No spaghettios for him, right? Actually, this is really cool. The fact that John even writes this is more evidence that he totally expects his readers to have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? Those three synoptics, they detail John the Baptist's imprisonment and his grisly end. John doesn't even include any of that in his account. He assumes you know, so to him this is not a spoiler. And here's the Cliff Notes version of the story that he assumes that you already know. Shortly after this, John the Baptist gets thrown into jail for publicly calling out Herod Antipas for divorcing his own wife to steal his brother's wife, okay, like really ugly drama, and John calls it out. So then at Herod's birthday party, his new daughter-in-law is dancing for him, and he enjoys it so much that he rashly promises her whatever she wants, and she says, to get revenge, John the Baptist's head on a platter, because her mom is still embarrassed and mad about being called out publicly, okay. So pretty crazy story, but that's what he's referencing. So this is why we consider this next passage to be his, like, famous last words, even though he probably had plenty to say while he was in prison. Okay. Last recorded words. Moving on, verse 25. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. Okay, first, why does he have disciples, right? Isn't that kind of a Jesus thing? And today, I think the word is mostly used in conjunction with Jesus. But at the time, and even now, it really just means followers. I think a better word might even be students. So students of John got into it with a Jew or a group of Jews, maybe in your translation, over a technical matter. So the message paraphrase says this, John's disciples got into an argument with the establishment Jews over the nature of baptism. Ceremonial cleansing, the nature of baptisms. Most likely what's happening is the traditional Jews are arguing that since Jewish rituals contain lots of washing, multiple washings, why do they need to engage in this new form of washing John's baptism. Okay? But what they were arguing about isn't actually the point. It's what the disciples say next. So John's disciples came to him, or in verse 26, and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one that you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him <laughs> instead of coming to us. Right? They were like, John, problem. Your cousin Jesus, too popular. More people are going to him then coming to you, and it's kind of your gig, right? You're John the Baptist, and he's Jesus Though we don't know yet, but it's not Jesus the Baptist, okay? People are unfollowing us on Twitter and following him, okay? They were jealous and angry and really, really protective of their teacher. It kind of sounds like every sibling fight ever. Why does he get more? What about me, right? And it sounds a lot like Jesus' disciples later in his ministry. They get into all kinds of petty arguments. It's hilarious. Who's greater? Who's first? Who runs fastest? Who gets to sit by Jesus in heaven, right? It doesn't stop. But listen, the issue here is that John's disciples are more interested in promoting his movement than hearing what he actually had to say. Okay, so John, I love this, he cuts straight through the squabbling to the heart of the problem. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. At first, it doesn't seem to answer the question initially. But it's kind of a wake-up call an invitation to see the bigger picture. It's like, it's like a brother and sister arguing over who gets the bigger piece of cake, Okay, and then John the Baptist walks in and goes, technically, your mom paid for the cake. <laughs> it's your mom's cake. The only reason you have cake is because your mom gave it to you. Okay, Just a purely hypothetical situation. <laughs> <laughs> I would have no way of knowing if that actually... Okay. John's like, you guys don't get it. I'm not the creator, God is. I'm not the giver of good things, God is. I didn't earn this fame, this reputation. God gave it to me. I'm only baptizing because God allowed it. It's only given to me to point to Jesus. And I think we need this wake-up call on a regular basis. When we start to get possessive of our stuff or jealous of other people's stuff, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. When we start to take too much pride in our level of success, our profession, No one can give anything unless God, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. And I think when we start to take the credit for our health or our talent or our gifts, no one can receive anything unless God's given it from heaven. So here's what John the Baptist knew God is the giver. And if he were standing here right now, he would say that everything you have is because God is the giver, not just your money clothes, your possession, your house, everything you have, the people in your life are there because God is the giver. The good that's in you, your sense of humor, your talents, because God is the giver. Everything that you think makes you uniquely you, you only have because God is the giver. Okay. Paul echoes this in his letter to the Corinthians, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? So John the Baptist tells his disciples that they have it backwards, and he continues their re-education in verse 28. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. He's like, you guys were there. You have heard me firsthand. I said, I'm not the guy. I'm just the arrow pointing to the guy. But you haven't stopped looking at me long enough to see where the arrow is pointing. We covered this the last time I taught about John. He says, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. The preeminence of Christ, remember? Five verses later, he's like, I am not the Messiah, but they still don't get it. So he tries some symbolism to help them understand, right? Something concrete to represent something abstract. It's kind of brilliant, okay? Look at verse 29. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy... At his success. The Bible is full of wedding imagery. Remember a few weeks back, what was Jesus' first sign or miracle? Water to wine. Where? At a wedding. Okay, all the time. But it's more than just a common theme. It's this symbolic metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship with the church. Okay, Something concrete to represent something abstract. And John's disciples would have known this because they would have read the prophet Isaiah. For the Lord delights in you, God's people, and will claim you as his bride. Then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. The prophet Hosea paints a picture of what restored creation and relationship will look like someday. Same theme. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. God is groom, church is bride. And Jesus uses the same imagery. Matthew nine fifteen, he refers to himself as the groom, which is another way of saying that he is God. Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. That's Jesus' role, God's role, he's the groom. We as the church, we're the bride, but who is John the Baptist? Read it again. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He's the groom's friend. We might say best man in our culture, okay? And let me tell you something, the best man's job is not to marry the bride. If he does that, he is a terrible, <laughs> terrible best man. <laughs> okay? And weddings at that time, the friend of the groom was like, um, like an assistant, more. Of a, not a main participant. Okay? They acted on behalf of the groom. Maybe they arranged for the ceremony, they worked the contracts. It was a position of honor, but it was nowhere near groom status. Okay? Have you ever attended a wedding specifically to go see the best man? No. Half the time, we don't even know who the wedding party is. We are there for the bride and the groom. Okay, I have photographed my fair share of weddings and I can attest to this fact. Friends of the groom are pretty low on the wedding day totem pole. Okay? It's what every wedding party needs to hear all day long. This is not about you. This is not your day. You are here for them. You can look good, but not as good as them. Right? And that last bit of verse 29 is pure magic. One more time. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Another translation, maybe yours, says this joy of mine is now complete. The friend of the groom finds perfect happiness in the marriage of his friend. There's no envy there. If John the Baptist had a tombstone, I am confident these words would be on it. This joy of mine is now complete. Which brings us to the last verse of the text and one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, verse 30. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Another translation reads, he must increase, and I must decrease. So at Christmas, my kids and I ordered um, a few big packs of stickers, kind of like decal stickers. And then we sorted through them all and messed them up with people for Christmas cards. It was really fun. But this one sticker kept popping up, and confession moment, I had no idea what it meant. Okay, here it is. <laughs> I promised I was a really good 90s Christian kid, and somehow this escaped me. Okay, <laughs> Turns out, thank you Google image search, it means exactly this verse. He is greater than I, correct grammar would say he is greater than me, but we'll let it slide, okay? (laughs) He must become greater, right? And I must become less, okay? My 12th graders um, in English class are doing a quick resume cover letter unit right now as they get ready to graduate, Um, and let me tell you, if it's been a while since you put together a resume, things have changed, (laughs) okay, hard skills, soft skills, keywords, no personal pronouns, no personal information, graphics, colors, minimalism, and 19 million templates to pick from, okay? Um, one trendy thing now that I actually really like is at the top, you include a personal summary, okay, right underneath the heading, like an objective or a personal mission statement, okay, like, here's who I am, elevator pitch style. Professional with experience in the marketing field. Okay. Passionate about contributing to the medical field with my skill and talent. Okay. Aiming to eat as many burritos at Chipotle before they find out and fire me, right? <laughs> Professional goals, okay. So you get the idea. Verse 30 would be that statement on John the Baptist's resume, okay? He must increase, I must decrease, continually. Okay, so what stands out to me most about this is the language, okay, look at it. It is not a one-time event. To become greater and greater, or less and less, these are processes, right? Lifelong processes, as it turns out. A slow burn, a slow, long road trip. John the Baptist's whole life was a long trajectory of God increasing. For my musicians here, think crescendo and decrescendo, okay? These are the images. If you're not a musician, let me help you. When these signs appear in music, it is a gradual, consistent, steady increase or decrease, not a sudden jump to nothing. John doesn't say, I must eliminate myself completely. No, because he's part of the equation. He knows that the bigger role God has in his life, the more he surrenders to him, the better John's going to be as a person, a friend, a teacher, a prophet. It's a paradox. The more you stake your identity in God, the more fully you become yourself. Okay, that's our text, verses 22 through 30. But before we can ask, so what, and move into our application part, we said we were gonna do one more thing first, okay? I wanna treat John the Baptist as a character. And by character, I don't mean fictional. We know he was real, okay? I just wanna play English teacher with you for just a few minutes. and talk about characterization, okay? So dig really deep. <laughs> Go back to English class. Some of you, that's 40 years ago. Some of you, is was probably last week in my classroom. <laughs> there are two ways to do this in, in English, okay? There's two ways to develop a character. One is called direct characterization. Sound familiar to you? Good, Good. okay. You learn about a character directly because the author tells you so. So, John the Baptist um, is described like this by John the disciple who was writing. Um, God sends him to tell about Jesus, he's not the light or the Messiah, he's got a habit of shouting a lot and getting really loud about Jesus. The other synoptic authors tell us directly, he eats bugs and honey, right, the locust thing, he wears weird camel hair robes, he lives in the wilderness, he attracts huge crowds, he baptizes and teaches about repentance, okay? That's what we learn directly about John the Baptist. But the other way to learn about a character, the other way is called indirect characterization. It's far more interesting And I think probably more accurate. So this is when you learn about a character um, indirectly, through their actions, through their words, their conversations, the way they treat people, um, other people's, other characters' thoughts or ideas or feelings about them. Okay, So let's look at John the Baptist just for a second like that. John's disciples were devoted and loyal to him. So what do we learn? He's a great leader. Okay. John's words consistently deflected all fame and pointed to Jesus. So we learn that He knew who he was, and he knew who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all began their gospel accounts by talking about John the Baptist first before Jesus. What do we learn? He was successful in the job God gave him to do. Best of all, Jesus himself said this about John the Baptist. I tell you the truth. Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist this is like, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's like the ultimate endorsement. John the Baptist's resume would have had a solid reference list Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus, right? So put that all together. Who is this character of John the Baptist, right? Because if Jesus says he was the greatest man that ever lived, perhaps we should pay attention. Okay. Three keywords kind of stand out to me. Here they are I see humility, and confidence, and purpose. I think this sums him up. This is like the John the Baptist formula, if you will. These would be his resume keywords, right? Humility, confidence, purpose. His humility was unshakable, but so was his confidence. And he knew his purpose clearly and lived it out. So I think now we get to ask our so what question. What does any of this matter? What does it have to do with me? And it all comes down to this last recorded sentence. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Okay, one more time. I want this image up. What would it look like for this to be true in my own life, practically? What would it look like for God to crescendo and for me to decrescendo? Not to be redundant, but I think it looks like humility and confidence and purpose. Okay, let's look at each one of those quickly. And on behalf of John the Baptist, I'll give you a practical challenge in each area for this week. Okay, first up, humility. He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He must become greater. In fact, the more of him and the less of me, the better. And I think that kind of humility um, isn't really understood in our culture, our success and our pride-oriented culture. And I think culturally we get humility very, very wrong. We're taught that humility means weakness, not having a backbone, letting people walk on you, or maybe images of pity parties come to mind, or the humble brag. Maybe you think humility looks a lot like self-deprecation, or tearing yourself down. And often it's a pretty uncomfortable topic, because frankly, when you think about humility, we feel convicted about being prideful. Okay, I know I do. Oliver Wendell Holmes is a hilarious physician and poet, and he famously said this, humility is the first of the virtues for other people. (laughs) But I would argue that in God's beautiful, paradoxical, upside-down kingdom, it is precisely John the Baptist's humility that makes him great. In God's kingdom, don't miss this, humility is the measure of greatness author Henry Jowett, who I love, says it like this. Here's our Lord's estimate of true greatness. How infinite is the contrast between his standard and the standards of the world. The world measures greatness by money or eloquence or intellectual skill or even by prowess on the field of battle. But here is the Lord's standard. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus came as a little child precisely for this purpose, to model this kind of humility in plain physical form, something concrete to represent something abstract. And you cannot go far in the Bible without running to God's opinion of humility. 1 Peter 5.5, all of you dress yourselves in humility, clothe yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Philippians 2 lays it out plainly, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interest. take an interest in others too. Biblical humility at its core is simply a realistic view of who you are and who God is, that's it. A realistic view of who you are and who God is. Because okay? when you realize exactly how great your need is and how good God is, your pride shrivels up and dies. When you see God clearly, your eyes stay there. You stop wanting to stare at yourself. You stop looking at yourself for answers. Adele Calhoun wrote the Spiritual Discipline Handbook. Incredible book. And in the section on humility, she says, humility stems from having someone besides yourself as the center of your attention. My focus on him must become greater and greater. My focus on myself must become less and less. This is the John the Baptist formula. Okay, last quote in this section, love this one, Pastor Henry Blackaby. There are two ways to attain high esteem. One is the world's method. Take every opportunity to promote yourself before others. Seize occasions for recognition and manipulate your way into the center of attention. The other way is God's way. Humble yourself. Rather than striving for recognition and influential positions, seek to put others first. Cultivate humility, for it does not come naturally. I promised you a practical challenge in each of these areas. Here's your first. Cultivate humility. Because Henry Blackaby is right, it does not come naturally. Not to you, not to me, not to John the Baptist. He had to cultivate it too. So, take a realistic look at yourself and at God. Feel the pride shrivel up and die. Thoreau says humility like darkness reveals the heavenly lights, and he's right too. You cannot see the starry night sky when you are staring at your face in a mirror. So this week, don't be afraid about being realistic about your true state. Let it hit you hard, because then actively putting someone before you at work, at home, at school, it's going to be easier and more enjoyable when you can see yourself realistically. Okay? Cultivate humility. Part two, John the Baptist's formula is confidence. So John the Baptist says two different things that seem opposing, but actually show biblical confidence. I'm not worthy to be a slave or untie his sandals. And then what we read today in chapter three, um, I am the friend of the bridegroom, I'm the best man. Okay, so not worthy to be a slave, down here, and then best man of the groom, which even back then was a position of honor. Okay, so how can he view himself in both of these ways at the same time? Super lowly, honored friend, right? Humility and confidence. And again, I think our world gets this wrong. Our culture says confidence to be loud and braggy and arrogant, that you have to totally believe in yourself to be considered confident. And this is not what God says. The Bible paints a picture of humble confidence, the same kind of confidence that starts in our awareness of our own shortcomings, humility, but ends in total confidence in who God is and then who he is in us. Just a few of the verses that paint this picture, there are so many more. Second um, Chronicles chapter 32, a moment of war. With him is only the arm of flesh but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles and the people gain confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. They gained confidence not because their army was great or because they had like the best sharpest weapons. No, their confidence was in God's strength and ability to help them, not on their own. Do you see the difference? Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We get to approach God with confidence. Why? Because the verses right before 4.16 say that Jesus didn't sin and that Jesus kicked death's tail. And because of him, we get to approach God with confidence, not because of us. Hebrews 13.6, so we say, with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can your mortals do to me? Again, our confidence is based in God's identity, God's help. Because God is in me, I'm enough. Jeremiah seventeen seven says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Because God is the only appropriate recipient of my confidence ever. Right? I cannot be trusted with that. Last one, this is a favorite in my family, Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Our confidence has to be rooted in who God is in us, and that has to begin in humility. A few weeks ago, Kids and I went on a little adventure down the Oregon coast into the Redwood Territory. It was beautiful. We were on this spectacular hike that also happened to be very muddy and rocky. So I was moving a little slower than usual because I was attempting to stay vertical, understandable. But my daughter Violet was bouncing around all over the trail like some kind of mountain goat. And I said, Violet, you are really, really good at not falling. And she said, I'm really good at falling. I said, no, I was saying that you're really good at not falling. She goes, Mom, I heard you. I'm really good at not falling because I'm really good at falling. You have to fall a lot to learn how not to do it. (laughs) That'll preach. (laughs) (laughs) Humility has to be the foundation for our confidence. Okay? It was for John the Baptist. He knew exactly who he was and who he wasn't, and he knew exactly who Jesus was. So he placed all of his confidence in Jesus, and because of that, he became a confident, strong leader who drew huge crowds. His strong leadership was in by his humility, second by his confidence. You guys, we need strong leaders who are humble, confident in the world in general, but specifically in the church and in the kingdom. Alicia Britt wrote this really powerful little book called Anonymous, and in it she describes leaders who walk with this kind of humble confidence. Publicly, they stand before others and lead, but privately, they continue to kneel before God and learn. The word confidence has been a buzzword in my home this year. Um, My son Daniel started high school at a new school, which is not always easy, Um, but he's been coming home on cloud nine just almost every day, and the word he keeps using, his own choice, is confidence. He says, Mom, I don't know how else to describe this, except that there's this new thing in me, and I think that it's confidence. I'm learning that it's okay to be me, it's okay to love God and to be silly and quirky, and I don't have to act like someone else or act like I'm perfect to be okay. He said, who I am is enough because God's in me. Right? Do you hear the humble confidence though? Because of God in me, now I'm enough. Humility and confidence have to go together. So here's your practical challenge in this area. It's awkward. I want you to finish this sentence. (laughs) Because of God, I am confident in my what? Share with someone, maybe a community group, spouse, parent, friend. Send me a text. Practice staying in confidence. It's going to be awkward. Yeah. Do it anyway. Practice this kind of confidence because of God and me. Okay, third and final part of our John the Baptist formula. Purpose. We see it in our text today and in every chapter of John that we have read so far. The truth is that John the Baptist had a clearer picture of his life purpose than maybe anyone I've ever met ever. I envy the kind of clarity that he had. So what was that purpose? Okay, John chapter one, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe. Then John wasn't the light, he was a witness to the light, not the groom, he's the best man. John repeatedly said, it's not about me, everything I'm doing is just to point to the Messiah. He witnesses Jesus' baptism and then he IDs him for everyone else. Look, it's the Lamb of God. His purpose was to be a giant, flashing, neon arrow who just points to Jesus. That's it. And once Jesus is on the scene, John's role becomes less and less, decrescendo. And Jesus' role becomes greater and greater, crescendo. Do you see it as an arrow? His whole life was to get people looking in the right direction so that when Jesus shows up, they don't miss it. And that direction first has to be at their sin problem. They have to see themselves realistically. We have to see ourselves realistically before we can understand our need for him. In his commentary, John Barclay says it like this, there are two revelations in Christianity, the revelation of God and the revelation of ourselves. No man ever really sees himself until he sees himself in the presence of Christ. And then he is appalled at the sight. There's another way of putting it. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. It begins with a sudden realization that life as we are living it will not do. We awake to ourselves when we awake to our need of God. We awake to ourselves humility when we awake to our need of God confidence. And that's where you find purpose. You'll find out that God has wired you in a specific way to fill a specific purpose. You are on purpose. Your third challenge for this week in the area of purpose is simply this. Take communion. And here's why. Taking communion every week as a church There's a lot of beautiful things for us. It's a reminder, it's a physical act that helps ground us. It's a concrete moment, right, that represents an abstract concept. It's a rhythm that brings us together as a church family. And today, look at it as a picture of humility, confidence, and purpose. Okay, so we humble ourselves as we approach the tables. We have to put ourselves in a physical posture of need. Like, you literally have to stand up, come forward, stand in line, and approach the tables for something that you need that you don't have. You physically, with your body, acknowledge that you can't save yourself. It's humility. Okay? Then at the table, as you receive the elements, you remember the extraordinary gift of the cross. Remember that now we get to walk in this reality that God's in us, he's within us, the spirit's life, breath, power. Within. I mean, that's confidence at the table. And then as you leave the table with this renewed purpose to spend your life well, If this is true, then I will live the rest of my life doing the only thing worth doing, which is what John the Baptist did, spending ourselves, pouring ourselves out as a flashing neon arrow pointing to Jesus. Humility, confidence, purpose. Let's close with these words from Paul. This time it'll be Jesus modeling this humility, confidence, purpose pattern. Uh, Philippians chapter two, Paul writes, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for symbols like communion and marriage and baptism that help us understand and experience you. Thank you for the example of John the Baptist's life it inspires us, it refreshes us, and it gives us a beautiful picture of humility and confidence and purpose. As we step into these practices in small ways and big ways this week, guide us. Reveal our sin, yes, but then reveal your beauty and your strength and your unbelievable love for us. Because of you, may we we walk in humble confidence and in freedom. Amen.